Hello there! It's Friday, which means it's time once again for the best movie podcast ever. The only movie podcast to offer objective and hyperbole-free discussion of every movie in the known universe. I am your host, the podcaster with no name, Conrad, and with me as always, ain't nobody does it better. <laughs> it's Anthony James. Good afternoon, good evening, good night. <laughs> a musical intro for Anthony there. I love I love that intro for me because like if there's if there's ever a style of music which probably is the antithesis to who I am, it's I mean I love the music, don't get me wrong. But I think when people think of it, they don't they don't really think of that sort of R and B sort of, you know, like no. That's not I really feel me. like you, you and Shaka Khan, who I believe was the artist uh, credited with that song, are fairly far apart in terms of just about everything. I would say. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what uh, the music with intro to me would actually fit. I'm, well, I'm I'm swayed by the fact that I'm wearing this shirt to think it's something with a banjo, but actually, you never know. You never know. I, I mean, it, that's the low hanging fruit, isn't it, to yeah, associate yeah. you with with, with folk. Um, but I don't like Mumford and Sons, so I'm and no one knows any other folk apart from that in the modern day. So, <laughs> so we're segway, not segway. Uh, Mumford and Sons obviously have become a huge stadium band, like to the point where mm. they actually don't even they do some folk still, and they've also went into sort of a more sort of alt rocky thing too. Um, I am a fan of Mumford and Sons. I will say I know that you know there's a there's a few songs that are the same, but I will say this is really interesting. I actually bought a vinyl of Mumford and Sons back in like 2010, which is like a small. I think it's an eight inch. I'm not exactly sure. It's quite a maybe seven inch. It's quite an odd size. It was sort of a little EP they made with a um with other musicians, and they didn't call themselves Mumford and Sons. They called themselves the Wedding Band, right? Um, and the, it was a limited release of this four song EP, and that's the only place you can get the songs, um, except I think Spotify. Obviously, I looked it up, Conrad, on eBay. The vinyl that I have is selling for 500 quid. Get it on there. You'd be like, um, oh, what was that guy? Was it Martin Screlly? Like the dickhead pharma company guy who bought like the last Wu-Tang Clan album. They only made one <laughs> copy of it and he bought it. Um, you'd be I, like a less, a less shitty version of him. I don't know the name of the farmer who bought the last Wu-Tang Clan <laughs> album, to be honest with you. So well, we'll go listen, with Martin Screlly. That's the kind of high high concept banter that you come here uh, f- to the uh, best... I almost said the After Dark podcast then. That's not what this is. It's the best movie podcast ever, and that's what you come here for. Yeah, we are but it's very much in the light, that. Conrad. Very much in the light, not After Dark. Yes. Yeah, we are in the light. Um, but it's not just that, because also... What else will we talk about here on the best movie podcast ever? But Tony Hawk documentaries. We're going to have some conversations about that uh, this week. Uh, we're going to talk about Ethan Cohen quitting filmmaking. Uh, an exciting new game to stand in for Back to the Feature because I've decided, I've made an executive decision to do something different this week. Back to the mm. Feature's not retired. It just... It's not happening this week. And uh, a critically acclaimed anime, which also happens to be the second highest grossing Japanese movie of all time. So I say, let's talk about some gosh darn movies. Let's do it. Movies, specifically skateboarding ones, let's talk about them. So (laughs) there's a Tony Hawk documentary in the works, um, directed by a, a man by the name of Sam Jones, who I, to be honest didn't know anything about until i read the story about uh, tony hawk documentary being mm-hmm. made by him uh he made he has made thus far a handful of musical documentaries um and uh, he will helm the thus far unnamed uh documentary and i'm going to admit something here okay i as i was reading the 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 article about this i came up with a joke 
But, full disclosure, AV Club did admittedly beat me to the gag of suggesting Birdman <laughs> as a name for this documentary. Those of you who don't know, Birdman is one of Tony Hawk's nicknames. But I'm going to yeah. repeat it anyway because it proves my street cred as someone who was very much involved in the skateboarding scene in the late 90s and early 2000s. So, Birdman would be a good name for this documentary, <laughs> I think. Yeah, unfortunately, there's already a Birdman film in the last sort of five, six years. That's the only yeah. thing standing in its way. We can just ignore that. Um, Anthony, where do you stand on skateboarding? How excited are you for this? Um, I, I will definitely watch it. I, I, I've fallen out uh, of, of the old skateboarding uh, knowledge. I don't know any of the people these days, to be quite honest with you. I used to know quite a bit from the video games and from watching it on TV, but I yeah. don't know. Bam Majira, is he still about? No, <laughs> no absolutely not. He is, he is the, op- the opposite of about yeah, yeah, <laughs> these yeah. days. He's the opposite of about. But uh, I know there's apparently some 12-year-old kid who landed the first 1080 in competition. Is that true? uh maybe i've see i i have like an encyclopedic knowledge of every skateboarder that was in those tony hawk games between the years like 1998 and 2003 but anything either side of that and i'm lost i actually the 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 most i've been involved in skateboarding since then uh was watching the olympics uh in tokyo Mm -hmm. and watching a bunch of like sick ass 13 year olds just absolutely shred and be like well they're better than i was at 13 and they're certainly better than i am at 34 so good on them i guess i've wasted my life yeah there was a 13 year old british girl who did a really good job got a bronze medal i I watched that sidestep from skateboarding just for a second though guys if you want to watch an unbelievable moment in the olympics the bmx tricking what do you call matt hoffman biking basically um there was a there was a woman uh from britain who won the gold in that against an american the american was the hot favorite go and watch like the 10 minute video on youtube of it i think it's on bbc she's the one who did like the 360 backflip yeah yeah, yeah. so she failed in the first round and then the american went on and got a this 19 year old american who's amazing got an amazing huge score and then and then the british girl was like instead of playing it safe and going for like a I should say woman, sorry, not girl, going for a silver or a bronze. She was like, the silver. Yeah, yeah, she was like, screw it, I'm going to go for it again. And she went for this trick that had never been landed, 360 backflip, and she got it, and she won the gold. It was unbelievable. Takes, yeah, some balls to do that. I always feel like skateboard, you know, I'm not going to rank the extreme sports here. They're all, they all seem pretty cool to me. Um, but BMXing seems like the most dangerous because when you do a trick, if you screw it up, Either you're landing on the bike or the bike is landing on you. Yeah, Either yeah, way, yeah. that's a bad situation. <laughs> like, yeah, skateboarding, which... like you've got your elbow pads, you've got your knee pads, you've got your helmet. You just are a person falling onto the ground. Whereas yeah. in BMX, you've got like this apparatus which could like take yeah, your knee this, off or something. This, this, this heavy metal thing whipping around <laughs> your head at rapid speeds. Um, uh, but yeah. go on, carry on. I was going to say yes, but I am very, very look, much looking forward to the Tony Hawk documentary. It's sort of, I really enjoyed the Michael Jordan documentary, which we've talked about before. I don't know about yeah. on air, but the, the, the idea of having a Tony Hawk documentary where he was properly, properly... The, like the top of the game and like he was the household name i'm looking forward to seeing a bit of the behind the scenes sort of some of the yeah. stories seeing even all the names that i was familiar with at the time talking maybe hopefully they can get a load of the skateboarders from the time to talk in the documentary that'd be really cool you get know? jeff rowley involved <laughs> let me see a dark slide um it's all it is actually all like shot and it's at the editing stage now and oh, apparently cool. hawk um was heavily involved in it so um it should hopefully hit our screen sometime in 2022 and um it should be pretty involved i think it's going to be similar to the last dance it well actually i think it's going to be similar to the last dance in terms of access i think it will be 
probably slightly less ego stroking than the last dance was to Michael Jordan. And I say that as a Chicago Bulls fan. Um the last dance was very much a PR spin piece for Michael Jordan. I think it's I think it's safe. And to I say. had a problem with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whereas Tony Hawk seems to enjoy the fact that uh he's kind of faded into obscurity and no one actually knows who he is anymore, which is is absolutely how we should age into our forties and fifties as far as I'm concerned. I um, I am actually curious, Conrad. Sorry, before you go on, I am curious sure. though. As far as I remember, there was no like, like the Last Dance of Michael Jordan had built-in drama based on you know the ego that he was, but also, um, how much sort of like I suppose you could say a dick, but the high standards that he set, as well as mm. that, as well as that, the fact that he left and came back. Whereas Tony Hawk's career doesn't actually spark to me off in well, I'll learn in the documentary, but as one that was full of drama. Like, I don't really see where the drama is going to come from. Yeah, well, I suppose, like, trying to land the 900 in a competition, that's probably that's mm. probably quite a big part of it. Um, and other than that, just being, like, really good at skateboarding, mm-hmm. uh, vert skateboarding, I, I guess. But, I mean, I can't claim to be an expert. We'll find out yeah. in 2022. <laughs> we'll keep our eyes peeled for that one. Um, so, another... Th- well, I... I th- I was going to try and segue neatly into this, but there's not really any good way of, of doing it except to say, if we if, if we are keeping our eyes peeled for a Tony Hawk documentary, something that we will not see, no matter how well we keep our eyes peeled, is Ethan Cohen making films anymore, because apparently mm. he's done with that. Um, so um, in an interview on uh, the Score podcast, longtime uh, collaborator, uh, composer Carter Burwell suggested that Ethan Cohen is... Uh, done with movies just doesn't want to make movies anymore apparently and that whatever he does going forward is unlikely to involve the movie industry uh he's going to focus instead on theater and other non-movie projects and although um ethan and joel cohen have worked separately in the past it's pretty rare to be honest normally mm-hmm. ethan is just uncredited as a writer and director on the movies they actually make together i've never actually looked into that to see why ethan cohen tends to be uncredited uh mm. when by all accounts he is equally uh, uh contributing to these projects um but it seems as if joel cohen's latest movie uh, the tragedy of macbeth marks more than just a one-off departure for the pair so if you're a fan of the cohen brothers as a team it could be a bit of an end of an era uh moment um this year because we might not see them working together again yeah it's one of those interesting things that i never actually like partnerships like you know uh, lennon mccartney stuff like that partnerships that do break up yeah. and the, and like they obviously they're brothers they probably haven't broken up you know what i mean but they're gonna stop working together you don't actually really know what the strength of each one really was until they go their separate ways and see so we'll really mm. see joel joel cohen now like what is his film gonna lack what what we, ethan cohen brought it's gonna be really interesting to see both going forward you know yeah definitely and um yeah, the the tragedy of Macbeth is an interesting one to kind of start that comparison off with because it's essentially like a reimagining of the Shakespeare tale starring Francis McDormand and Denzel Washington, which is, I'm assuming it's a period piece. I don't actually know. Um, so it could be like a a Baz Luhrmann style Romeo and Juliet movie, which would just be great. I'd love to see jo- like Joel Cohen go down that route, uh, and we'll get the Cardigans doing the soundtrack for it. But who knows? As you say, we've not really seen them separately very much at all. Um, mm. But that's due to release in film festivals um, in September of this year. So we should see what Joel's movies in an Ethanless world are going to look like fairly soon. Um, but mm. yeah, it's sad. I like. I really like 
I really like some Coen Brothers films. I think they had a stretch in the kind of late 90s to mid 2000s where they made some pretty bad movies uh stuff like kind of burn after reading and um what's the other one i don't like oh their remake of the the lady killers but i think they kind of <laughs> they, they kind of found themselves uh, although i will say actually of their remake of the lady killers um tom hanks is great in that movie He's, yeah he is yeah, he was, so uh, he, funny in that there's some really good performances in it let's be honest uh but yeah it, it's wasn't one of the best ones i like obviously the the ones that they are really really well known for they will always be remembered for and i think that yeah. he's done enough in his film career that he will be remembered as a very good filmmaker um oh absolutely but, yeah mm-hmm. but it, it'll just it'll just be interesting going forward um it's a shame actually in a way like i i really do like i actually i'm quite a fan of Coen brothers films like there's enough there like no control men true grit i really like that fargo especially to be honest with yeah, you the fargo big is Le- amazing the big lebowski oh brother we're out there like these are all fantastic films that i i have a really real even a serious man was was good as well um there's like i real place my heart for a lot of these films and it's just sad that they might not be the same but maybe they will who who knows maybe they were like that in tandem that actually joel Cohen will just carry on you know yeah yeah no i I, well i hope whatever whatever um even kern ends up doing it's it's creative in some way because he's obviously very talented Mm -hmm. and he will be missed in the movie industry um speaking of things that have missed in the movie industry suicide squad has come in beneath expectations now i'm gonna i'm gonna preface this by saying this entire episode of the best movie podcast ever is going to be very (laughs) movie grossing centric and i didn't mean it to be it just kind of came up a lot while i was writing writing the script for this episode um and obviously the money something makes is not an indication of quality but it's interesting for the future of the mm. uh, Suicide Squad franchise that James Gunn's tilt at it has only made uh, 26 and a half, I say only, but it's made 26 and a half million domestic in its opening weekend as uh, US moviegoers have chosen to probably wisely stay at home because of the Delta variant of the uh, COVID-19. Mm. Uh, is it a virus? I should know this by now. Coronavirus, it's only yeah. For like, yeah, it is a virus, isn't it? Of course it is. Literally the name. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, it is. Listen, I'm not here to deal with the details, all right? I'm a big picture guy. Um, <laughs> the, with the movie taking uh, $35 million internationally, and uh, Warner Brothers were apparently hoping for a $30 million, uh, opening when compared to Black Widow's $80 million worldwide and uh, Fast 9, which made 70 So... Hmm. It's it's in it's well it's interesting and it's sad because critics and people who've gone to see it which I have you seen it I can't remember uh, if I no I will be seeing it soon but I have not seen okay. it as of yet my 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 partner has seen it they very much enjoyed it most of the people that I've seen uh, that I know who have seen it or that I've read uh, reviews from seem to really like it so it seems to be doing very well in terms of audience and yeah. critical reception and a shame that it's uh, not making as much money as Warner Brothers would like. However, 26.5 million domestic and 30 million internationally is not exactly bad. So maybe Warner Brothers should have slightly small, slightly lower expectations given we are still in the pandemic. Yes, and also given the fact that this was a film that they was the audience knew they were trying to plaster over the cracks of the last one which was terrible and and they yeah. like and they they called it the same name basically they added a the as well as that they were heavily relying on advertising saying that it was the director of guardians of the galaxy which everyone yeah. knows is in the marvel cinematic universe and they're expecting a third so even at that people are probably thinking like nah don't like maybe i'll go see it like myself i wanted to go see it it's, i have still haven't seen it like i will probably see it but 
I still haven't seen it because I'm not really that caring. I'm sure I'll enjoy it. I'm mm. sure, but I'm not expecting to go away like I do when I come out of a Marvel film thinking, oh my God, that could... Uh, like, say what you want to get about Black Widow. I came out thinking to myself, okay, so where is that in the timeline? What happened here? Yeah. Where is this character going to come back? When I go to see Suicide Squad, I'm going to have a few laughs probably. I'm going to enjoy certain things. You know, and then I'm going to go home and I'm not going to think about the DC Universe again, you know? So... Yeah, and... I- I think as well, like the it's it's similar to when um when they they brought in Joss Whedon to uh further ruin the Justice League movie, mm. um where obviously you know the a director a better director brings in a higher quality of work in this case I think James Gunn is delivering a, by all accounts delivering a better finished project a, a product than what David Ayer did uh, or or rather what they what they did to David Ayers after they finished editing it all to hell. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think your average movie-going fan really cares that James Gunn is directing this. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe there's you know there's a lot of people out there who who hear the director of Guardians of the Galaxy is making a new Suicide Squad movie and that's enough to get them in the cinema. But I feel like the era of big name directors is more or less yeah. over now, with the exception of maybe like Martin Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino, who are like the last real real holdouts so or Spielberg still occasionally turns out one or two um but but even though he might have made a better film I feel like that's not enough to get people in the cinemas and I guess is demonstrably the case here um but hopefully yeah. people go see it yeah I, th- I think to be honest with you I think he did such a good job with Guardians of the Galaxy that people just want to watch Guardians of the Galaxy like he made yeah. those characters iconic from the get-go yeah. and now people just want to go and see Star-Lord and see Gamora like you know yeah. it's like oh it's the Director of Guardians of the Galaxy is Peter Quill going to be in it? No. Well, then I'm not going to go see it. You know, that's how I kind of feel about it. You know, put Kurt Russell in Suicide Squad. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Um, yes. So go as long as you're safe. Go and see Suicide Squad. Apparently, it's very good. I haven't seen it yet. I probably will see it at some point because it sounds mm-hmm. fun. Now we've got some. We've got something exciting. We're here. If you're listening to this now, you are here at the birth, the genesis. <laughs> of a new segment in the best movie podcast ever. Anthony, let me ask you a question. How do you feel about The Price is Right? I mean, I like it whenever they say, uh, higher than a hop to there, you know that part. Uh, <laughs> I like the, pro- I like, I like some of it. I'll, I'll not say, did, did, did Bruce Forsyth do The Price is Right in the UK? Am he right? did, he did. He did okay, it for like well, 70 years, I think. Yeah, like, okay, was- <laughs> okay. So not the host really, but the, the, the it was all right. Like I, I, I'm getting where we're going here with this, and you mentioned already the uh, the grossing. I, I'm getting where we're going. Yeah. So, what we've got for you is a new game. It was always going to come because at some point, Back to the Future was going to hit a hit a week where all the answers were awful. So instead, I was yep. like, you know what? I'm going to devise something else, and I've been cooking this away. This has been percolating away in the back of my mind for several several weeks now. Okay. And I've devised a supplemental game, so it's not replacing Back to the Future. It's just gonna I'm gonna plug it into the gaps where there's a bad week where I don't like any of the answers for Back to the Future. Excellent. Wherein you, Anthony, and you, dear listener, <laughs> will hear ten movies from a given year and need to guess in the style of The Price Is Right whether they grossed higher or lower than the subsequent movie internationally. Uh, the answers are all in dollary dues. And uh, we'll <laughs> subtract a point for each incorrect answer. So you'll hear okay. them all. You'll hear all ten. Um, because where's the fun in missing out on an answer? Um, with that, does that all make sense to you, Anthony? Okay. So my understanding of it is, you're going to read out a name of a film, and then read out another one. Let's say film A, film B, 
If yeah. if I think film B is less than film A, then I'll say lower. Yes. And then we'll go to film C. If that's less than film B, I say lower again. Yes. And to get all 10 points, uh, you also need to get within 5 million. I reserve the right to change this to based on how well Anthony does, but within 5 million of the gross of the first movie. So I'm going to name you a movie. Okay. You have to tell me how much you think it grossed internationally. If you get within 5 million of that one, you get the first point and then it's higher or lower from there on. Right. Out. Not happening. <laughs> <laughs> let's see you never know you yeah. never know once I mean, you get you'll get you'll get a feel for it yeah, you'll get yeah, a feel for it i'll get it. okay so with that in mind anthony are you ready for the exciting new new game show segment conrad's box office bonanza check the mic and make sure it sound right boys <laughs> I, i'm ready let's do it my, I've, I've inserted this. I've inserted this sound effect there. I have no idea what music I'm going to put on, but it's going to be groovy. Don't you? Don't, just, you know, it you better know. be. Yeah. It, it better be. Okay. So this week's year, it's a great year for movies. It's 1982, stacked with absolute all-timers. Uh, I, I, I couldn't start anywhere else really. And the first movie is the Dustin Hoffman comedy, Tootsie. Oh, I see. How much? How much do you think Tootsie uh, grossed internationally? In eight, see, this is this is the thing. Eighty-two. The, I, I, I'm either gonna get it really right or really wrong. I yeah. I don't actually know the way films were grossing forty years ago. So um, I'm going to have a somewhat of a guess here, Conrad, because well, it's, it's also it's obviously a guess, but I've got no yeah. I've got no poll for this. Um, Tootsie. I it's something that I did watch. I'm gonna guess. I think back in those days, over a hundred million wasn't the wasn't the case. Um, I'm gonna go for sixty two. Mm, okay, yeah, sixty. I was gonna say it's too high, but it's my first guess. Sixty two million. Unfortunately, that's incorrect. It grossed one hundred seventy seven million two hundred thousand oh. dollars worldwide. Fuck Tootsie off! Absolutely <laughs> cooked at the box office. I can't in believe that. The people could not get enough of Dustin Hoffman dressed up as a lady and being in a sitcom. Twenty twenty one, the Suicide Squad has just had an opening weekend of twenty six. Yeah. Oh my god. That it. A lot of people saw Tootsie. I mean, it got a Criterion Collection release, so some people really like that movie. I think it's okay. I saw okay. it growing up. I can't remember much about it. That's... Your second movie in nineteen eighty two is Rambo. First Blood. Did that gross more or less than $177,200,000 reduce? Now, this is hard, actually, because my mind would say yes. But who knows? Maybe this, the world went mad for Tootsie. Like, I, I, it might have just gone mad for Tootsie. I, I mean, Dustin I, Hoffman was a big name in the 80s. Yeah, I would have went mad for Tootsie, to be honest with you. Maybe, maybe, was Tootsie like that generation's like um, Mrs. Doubtfire? That was the, that, yeah, that was the hangover of 1982. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, well, it's Rambo. I, come on, I gotta... Hang on, what number Rambo is this? This is the first Rambo. Rambo First Blood. Okay, it's gotta be higher then. I'm gonna go higher. Yeah? Yeah. Unfortunately, that's also incorrect. Rambo First Blood <laughs> only grossed 47,212,904. Oh Nowhere near to Tootsie. Tootsie was 
outrageously popular. This is I. Uh, this is I am really going to show my like modern day zeitgeist bias here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's why I thought this was interesting. Yeah, because very there interesting. are some there are some in this year that did not do very well that should have done, and and others that did insanely well that no yeah. one has seen. It's also the first um, time we're doing this game, so this will be the yeah. yardstick for where I have to aim for in points next yeah. time we do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it bears mentioning here that, that Anthony is coming to the, into this without any context whatsoever, you know? So, like, you know, you're feeling out the kind of values of movies, uh, movie grosses in the I didn't 80s. know this was happening. No, this is completely blind, and I'm not apologising for that. It was about time <laughs> someone, someone took you to a task. Okay, your third movie. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. It is The Thing. Did The Thing gross more or less than $47,212,904 internationally? I don't know how much of a box office hit John Carpenter is. He must it must be a box office hit cuz it's Kurt Russell. It must be. Like 47 million See, this has thrown my whole thing out of whack. I guess sixty-two for Tootsie. I, 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 was, I wasn't <laughs> yeah. expecting anything over a hundred million. It, the thing. Now, it's, it's, it's sort of somewhat of a horror film, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah. I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of a creepy ensemble horror. So, I have to think of it like this: horror films bring the audiences to the cinema. But did they bring them to the cinema in nineteen eighty-two? Is the question. That's a good question. Forty-seven million for Rambo. The thing, oh my god! You've chosen the order of this as well. I have. I've, del- I've, you know, I've, I've kept it interesting. I'll yeah. say that much. Okay, the thing. I'm gonna go higher just because of Kurt Russell. That is incorrect. Unfortunately, the thing <laughs> was a complete financial failure. Nineteen million six hundred twenty-nine thousand seven hundred sixty. Barely made its budget back and was critically panned at the time of release oh. which shows what critics th- know about movies frankly I need, I because need, this is the last couple of, like, couple of weeks have really shown me i need to brush up on john carpenter that's what what i've realized yes well, uh, i mean you definitely do uh, but john carpenter you, you to be honest your your line of thinking was right john carpenter with the exception of halloween probably um i'm trying to think of anything else he's made he's never really been box office gold like he's always been more of a critics darling or, or not in the case of the thing yeah. but um but i sort never... of thought that but kurt russell is a big name you know he is and, yeah. for, and when you ha- when you look at it tootsie at 177 you know what i mean it really I, that's what i mean it's modern day zeitgeist bias i have i i can't yeah. really i i can't put myself in a time where i wasn't alive at the minute i will eventually yeah. learn how to do it though we'll get there we'll get yeah. there okay so fourth movie it is the George A. Romero anthology horror creep show. Did that make more or less than nineteen million six hundred twenty-nine thousand seven hundred sixty dollars? You are a bastard, Conrad. You knew what you were doing here. You knew that I wouldn't really know what this film was about, and you knew, like, my hands are clean of this one. <laughs> like, I'm just picking them from this. I was picking good movies. That's no, I know, I know. Just the fact that. Like, th- yeah, this is a film that I don't really know too much about. But 19 million now, it was, it was, a, you say it was an absolute bomb. Like, it, so the thing didn't do well at the box office and it's still making 19 million. It makes me think this one must have done more. There's no way that you've put, I'm sort of metagaming now, but there's no way you've put four lowers the, in a the row. The metagaming, metagame away, that's part of it, is you, you have to get inside yeah. my mind, get inside my head. 
So you saying you think Creepshow made more money than the I, thing? I have to. I have to. One of these highs is eventually going to be true. You're correct. It did. It made $21,028,755. Million, so a couple of million more. A million and change. That makes me um, way happier than I thought it would, honestly. Okay. Now, this next one. How much did it make? The, how much did Creepshow make? Yeah. Twenty-one million twenty-eight thousand seven hundred fifty-five. So That's a million, a million and change. That's the close. next one, I'm not going to lie to you. If you don't get this, we might have to kick you off the podcast. The next movie is E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Did that make more than twenty-one million twenty-eight thousand seven hundred fifty-five dollars at the box office? I'm so glad you didn't put this one straight after Tootsie. Um, that was been I, harsh. Yeah, uh, this is clearly higher. You are correct. Uh, it was the highest grossing movie of 1982. Any guesses as to what, how, uh, how you much money you just give me the answer. You just give me the answer to the next one, Conrad. Um, that is, well, that's true. Yeah, but I mean, you were going to get the. Believe me, you got it. the next one anyway. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's ET. I know. It was still in the cinema when I was born, probably. Um, uh, any guesses? What sorry? On how much? Any it guesses was? for how much it made? Uh, say 230. Three hundred and fifty-nine million, one hundred ninety-seven thousand and thirty-seven dollars. You were getting cool to a mama. third, a third of a billion, and it's only yeah. nineteen eighty-two. Yeah, that movie made a whole lot of cash. Um, okay, movie number six, another movie that I uh, like, often incorrectly attributed to uh, Steven Spielberg, who actually produced it. it. Was Tobe Hooper, the director of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, who directed this one? It is Poltergeist. Did that make more or less than $359,197,037? Well, it's less, but I will say I'm surprised that people think Steven Spielberg directed that. It, uh, I don't know. It doesn't really... They plastered his name all over it because yeah, I think producer. they wanted, to, they, they wanted to, to, to sell it. And it, oh, they did a good job. Yeah, yeah. It did make less. You're absolutely right. It made $76,606,280. So still a good chunk of change. More mm-hmm. than Rambo, more than The Thing, more than Creepshow. Um, but, uh, but not in... Not an ET's stratus. So that's three uh, points. Three points I've got so far. Can I get five? Yep, three. Okay, next one. Easily in my top five favorite movies of all time, it's the Ridley Scott classic, Blade Runner. Did that make more or less than $76,606,280? Good question. I like it the is. question. It um, is a good question. Harrison Ford had already done Star Wars at that point. He had. I, like, this is one... This is the type of film, Blade Runner is the type of film, which I would 100% believe if you told me it wasn't appreciated when it was first released, you know, and then, you know, I can see that 100%. But Harrison Ford being in it after he'd already been in Star Wars, I don't know if he'd already been in Indiana Jones at this point. Potentially not. Um, I I think Raiders of the Lost Ark might have been 84. Yeah, I think it was after this. So, again, I, I... I was wrong doing this with Kurt Russell, but I am going to do it with Harrison Ford. I'm going to say mm, 76 is a lot. Um, it is a lot. It is a lot. But at the same time, it was it was a huge budget film, I think, at the time. I'm going to say higher, just, just as a gamble. Okay. Unfortunately, you're incorrect. Blade Runner, another critical and yeah, financial failure go. in 1982. People did not like this movie when it I came out. I had the inkling. Yeah, twenty-seven million five hundred eighty thousand one hundred eleven dollars didn't didn't make very much money at all. Uh, yeah, again, I, had, I had again. I had the thought process there. I just I just took a yeah. gamble. You took a gamble. It didn't quite pay off. But I th- well, I'm interested to see 
these last few. We'll see how you get on with mm-hmm. these last few because I don't, I don't know how many of these you've seen. I know you've seen one of them because I've forced you to watch it. Um, so here we go. Uh, eighth movie is the Arnold Schwarzenegger absolute classic Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> Did that make more or less than twenty seven million five hundred eighty thousand one hundred eleven dollars? Conan, like these all can't have bombed. So Conan the Barbarian must have made more. Um, it's his, isn't that his first film? What, like one no, his, his first film was Hercules in New York, I believe, oh, where he right, fights okay. a bear in Central Park. But it was close to his first. So this is he's coming hot off Hercules in New York. People are going to want to go see him. I he's missing universe at this point. Like the people yeah. love him. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say higher. You are correct. Yeah, higher. It was thirty nine million five hundred sixty five thousand four hundred seventy five. So about twelve million more. Um, a, a very very solid return for for Conan's uh, mm-hmm. swords and sandals epic. Um, okay, now this one's for our European listeners out there. The ninth movie on the list. It is uh, a very long movie. I think it's about f- almost four hours long. It's a, a, a movie set entirely on a German U-boat. It is Das Boot. Did oh, that I've make heard, more I've, or I've less than $39,565,475? I have heard of Das Boot. Yeah, it's um, a very, very a very good movie. Um, probably one of the most famous German movies, I w- mm. I'm going to say. Um, certainly among casual moviegoers. I think a lot of casual movie fans will know of Das Boot. Okay. Um this is this could be a very a very tricky question here. Dust boot German speaking was there the, the the hunger for a foreign language film at in those days or just was it in German cinemas all year long and people just kept going back to see it. Um it, yeah, it is international we're talking here. So. Yeah, uh, it is international. The the problem is it, I could see if it was like a Spanish film or like there's more people in the world who speak Spanish than there are who speak German. Mm. So, and I don't know how prevalent subtitled movies in, in cinema were in those days. I really don't. Um, so it was a bit of a shot in the dark. I'm just going to take another gamble. Uh, no, I won't. I'm going to play it safe, which also is probably going to be wrong. <laughs> and I'm going to say lower. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got it wrong, but I'd say lower. No, you've got it right. Your instincts were right. Das Boot, very, very highly regarded by critics, but ultimately it was still a four-hour-long German-language war film set entirely on a Uh, (laughs) U-boat. So it is very dry. Um, Das Boot made $10,915,250. I was was expecting it to be quite low. A good instinct. Um, Very good movie, though. Well worth seeing. And the final movie from our list in 1982, um, easily in my top seven movies in this series of all time. Um, it is Rocky three. Did Rocky three make more than $10,915,250 at the box office? Yes. Is the answer. I, I'm very surprised that Rocky three came out the same year as Rambo. Um, so listen, Stallone was busy in the eighties. Yeah. That's why, that's why Rambo didn't do as well because they, they already seen a Stallone movie that, that year. Um, I think, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to go higher. I would be surprised. Now, I probably am wrong about this, but I would be surprised if this didn't get more than Tootsie. You're 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 on the right track, but it, like it is higher than Das Boot. Obviously, it made one hundred twenty four million one hundred forty six thousand eight hundred ninety seven. So not as much as Tootsie. Tootsie was just a runaway success. I. It's one of those interesting movies where. 
I have seen it. It's pretty good, but I don't understand how it made as much money as it did. But then, you know, Venom made a billion dollars a couple of years ago. So we live in the movie industry is a weird thing. I think I think at a certain point in time, the idea of a man dressing up as a woman was inherently funny to people, which yeah. is which is which is strange. Like it, it's like I understand people dressing up as funny. Like, but I think just like for the longest time, I think like the idea of cross dressing like that. And I don't even know if that's a correct term, but I have no idea. But the idea of a man dressing up as a woman, for the longest time after that, it was referred to as, like, you're like Tootsie. Like, that was in the zeitgeist of the world yeah. for, like, 20 years after. Like, that was what was referenced when a man dressed up as a woman. Yeah, no, it definitely kind of captured uh, or, or was kind of absorbed into the wider public conscious in a way that probably isn't earned by the quality of the movie but you know <laughs> uh, these things happen sometimes as i say movie consumption is weird um so that's six points out of a possible 10 for you that's a pretty good first showing i'm gonna say in 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 conrad's box office bonanza um it's a little I'm bit like gonna... when you first get into a pool and it's a bit cold you need to get, yeah. you need to get in down to your neck and then once you're in you're like actually this is yeah, quite have nice a, have a swim around get yeah. let, let yourself get submerged in it and you'll you'll quickly find your feet um yeah. honorable mentions very quickly 48 hours made 78 million that year dark crystal made 40 million that year fast times at ridgemont high made 27 million that year mad max 2 23 million and the secret of nim made 14 million so there were some absolute fucking bangers in 1982 it is safe to say um i'm very surprised that dark crystal made 40 million because that is sort of remembered as one of the henson ones which didn't do very well but 40 million is not bad it probably i think it cost them quite a lot to make because because yeah. of the because of the puppets um but there you go anthony you've scored six points in the debut segment of conrad's box office bonanza how do you feel i feel i feel great um hi mom like thanks thanks very much uh six points i'll be bringing home seven next time i promise you that <laughs> yeah. well i think we'll probably be back to the feature again next week oh, because, yeah. no, but next uh, time we because there's it. some good ones yeah, yeah but um but yeah that's gonna do it there for conrad's box office bonanza okay that's my segue out of that. There's not. <laughs> I, I don't think there's going to be any kind of transition scene here, so no, we're no. just going to pa- we're going to power straight through. We're going to go from the mo- the 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 financial successes and failures of 1982 to a movie that was objectively and demonstrably a massive box office success. It is the movie we're here to talk about. It is Makoto Shinkai's Your Name from 2016. Um, it is the second highest grossing Japanese movie of all time, earning 250 million. Uh, only behind Spirited Away from Studio Ghibli, which I actually mm. know how much that made. Um, so, I mean, I guess first things first, that seems, again, I don't really, it didn't really mean this to be like a kind of, look how much money these movies made kind of episode, <laughs> but I guess it's going to be. That kind of surprised me, um, finding that out. I would have thought like a Kurosawa or maybe another Ghibli film would have an unassailable lead uh, in that, but I, I don't know if they're adjusted for inflation, these old values, to be fair. Hmm, they're probably not, to be honest with you, but it's 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 interesting actually. Um having seen the film, I like it, it's good. Like, don't get me wrong, it is good. But um I, I've definitely seen films coming out of Japan that I prefer, let's say. Um, okay. Interesting. This this must have this must have hit a particular mood and feeling within 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 the culture at the time you know what i mean um yeah well i, th- I think it did get uh it did get a fairly uh well marketed u.s release as well which definitely mm. helped because oh, yeah. a lot a lot of a lot of the uh anime movies just don't get that unless they're studio ghibli i think 
Yeah, yeah, no, but like you know, um, I, I am surprised by that. To be honest with you, the size of that of that income, uh, and yeah. I mean, it's sort of, it probably sets this filmmaker up for to have like a successful career now because he, oh, he'll get yeah. he'll get funding for matter, no matter what he wants to do now. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I, I, he went on to make, uh, I believe, Weathering with You in 2019, which was also an enormous success. Um, I should, I should qualify at this point. It, it, the The title of this movie is actually Your Name, full stop. That's important. There's punctuation in the title. I've got to mention it. Like we've got to, we've, we've got to make sure we we uh, name it correctly. And in that vein, mm-hmm. um, let's do our traditional anime credibility check. Anthony, did you watch this in English or in Japanese? Of course, I watched it in English. I I was gonna gonna watch it in English um, because I'm lazy and apparently the dub is very good. But to be honest, um, Sky oh no Netflix rather have this incredibly annoying habit. I don't know what you and Emma are like, but 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 my partner is a big fan of having subtitles on at mm-hmm. all times, pretty much. And um, oh, we Net- did that. Yeah. <laughs> well, so Netflix's anime. Uh, it's probably not their fault. It's probably the the the, uh, the the subtitles they're provided when they when they license these movies. Mm-hmm. But when you listen to it in English, the subtitles very rarely match what is actually said in English, yep. and I yep. find it incredibly confusing. So I was like, we're gonna have to watch this in Japanese. That <laughs> so was I, that was an issue. <laughs> yeah. So I, I so I've actually made my viewing experience more legitimate uh, by avoiding this issue entirely. <laughs> Yeah, you have. I I got both. I got I got like the actual audio English and the subtitle because with two young children in the house, like even when they're in bed, you still have the subtitles on just because you you're just used to having them on. Uh, yeah. And yeah, there was some questionable translations, we'll say. Yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely standard for for Netflix. So um, so for those of you who haven't seen this movie, it's kind of, I guess it kind of positions itself or, or starts off as like a body swap comedy kind of thing. I don't, yeah, I don't really, yeah, I don't really know where to go with this in terms of spoilers and non-spoilers. We'll try to be as non-spoiler as possible. But it's one of those films which you can say the second half of is very different than the first half. Absolutely. Yeah. You had Matt Damon's downsizing, and now you've got this. Um, th- this is... I will I've never say, seen Matt Downsizing, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> yeah, well, the first half of down- Downsizing, Matt Damon is, it's all about like the lead up to being downsized. And it's like, oh my God, he's going to be tiny, you know, and it's all this sort of thing. And then the second half of it is literally just him in the small world. And because it's all in the small world, he's not hes not small. He's just a normal sized man. Like, it's so weird. Anyway, um, I will say about this film, up until the change, I was enjoying it. I thought yeah. it was interesting. I thought it was. I, I, I liked it, but I did think to myself, and I'm glad it changed because I was judging anime anime watches. Because uh, I was thinking to myself, Conrad, the first half of this film, I was thinking, I've seen this film, and I'm pretty sure it starred Mary Kate and, and Ashley Olsen. Like this, this was basically like if you were going to make this film in the mid 2000s, Lizzie McGuire would be starring in it. Like the first half of this film was honestly like a Nickelodeon uh, Disney Channel you know, body swap comedy, which looked nice and was all about teenagers. Like, it, I was like, where's this going? Like, you know? Yeah, I, I think, um, I do, I, I, I think I enjoyed the first half probably more than you did. But I think, so essentially this, this movie tells the story of uh, a young boy in Tokyo called Taki and uh, a young girl in, I, uh, I can't remember, Itamori, I think Itamori. it's a little, mm-hmm. little kind of like a uh, village, a uh, fairly rural village um, out out like rural japan somewhere nearish tokyo but not that near uh called mitsua um who begin waking up in each other's bodies and essentially start 
they're, they're freaked out initially then they start um communicating with each other um by mm-hmm leaving little notes in each other's phones or writing things on each other's hands. And uh, eventually they start attempting to influence each other's lives in, you know, fairly quirky, fun ways. Uh, Mitsuo tries to help Taki out with getting a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, Taki is, doesn't actually help Mitsuo that much, to be honest, but he certainly is... He he, he learns a bit about um, the kind of Shintoism that, that mm-hmm. Mitsuo... Um, uh, or, or, just Shinto, not I don't think Shintoism is a word. Shinto that um, that Mitsuo uh, engages in, and yeah, the f- the first half I think it's carried an awful lot by how beautiful the animation is. I think um, I've got I, a that... bone to pick you there. Go on. It's not beautiful animation. It's beautiful drawings. The actual animation. I was just, I was I was doing what I had to do. I was comparing it to Akira, which we watched a few weeks ago. Mm. Like the actual animation mm. is very very generic, but the actual image on the screen is beautiful. See, I I think you know the revolving shots around around characters as it takes in you know the kind of uh, landscapes were were, uh, were were very well animated for the most part. I, I I I suppose I'm just focusing on character animation. I suppose. Yeah, I I, I mean it's certainly not as dynamically animated as akira i think akira you can look at you know the bike chase at the beginning of that and be like holy shit that's like amazing the animation that they've that, and, and you know the way lights play off surfaces and stuff like that is 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 incredibly complicated but what i what i kind of found here was in in the in the opening half before and we won't get into spoilers just yet but before the change occurs in the story <laughs> there is an element and I, i'm loath to do this because it's a very kind of like western view on things to be like oh this is similar to studio ghibli even though it's yeah, not yeah. because that's your only point of reference but there is an there is a bit of the hayao miyazaki in this with its clear kind of like reverence for nature and mm. traditional elements of japanese life like its depiction of shinto rituals um but it's also very i feel like it is very much its own thing um and I, I found it really stunning to look at, I think. Um, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. I also, I, I wanted to get your opinion on this. When when we got the musical intro sequence that made it feel like an episode of an anime TV series, I was like, I'm going to enjoy this. Um, and then we get a couple <laughs> more musical montages throughout. How, how did you find those? Because I could imagine them being quite jarring to someone who doesn't necessarily watch that much anime. Yeah, I think I've seen enough anime to to, to sort of expect certain things. Um, yeah. I, I actually really love there were certain moments where the music was swelling under the scene, and then it was sort of building to a point, uh, like a, a point where I was like, "This feels like a musical," and they're about to burst into song. Yeah. But then, but then it was just like a song in the soundtrack. But I yeah. really felt like there was a moment where it was going to be like the character was going to start singing. Uh, but I really actually enjoyed that. I I, I liked it. Um, I liked that how the music was sort of really highlighted in certain in certain aspects. Obviously, as you say, a little montagey stuff that they did as well. But even like some of, some of the songs in it as well, I thought to myself, "Geez, I'll listen to that. I'll get that on Spotify and yeah. listen to that." Yeah, there's there's some really really catchy stuff in the soundtrack, and they're very kind of like that. There is um you know an orchestral score, but there's also you know actual pop songs that play. I, I yeah. don't know I don't know whether they were written for this or whether they're just licensed, but um but they're really distinctive, and it, and it's it's not something you see very much in in Western movies. I get I guess like maybe the equivalent would be something like Suicide Squad, where they you know just use a a licensed song to to mm-hmm. increase the effect of a of a, of a segment, but uh. It really struck me in this. Um, so, mm. going back to going back to your your point about how you kind of felt like the, the the first half was like a 
Was it the Olsen twins in Freaky Friday, or was no, that? No, that was is uh, that that was Jamie Lee Curtis and uh, Lindsay Lohan. Lindsay Lohan. That's the, the one I was thinking of. Which one were you thinking of? Oh, the Olsen twins were in a were in like basically a Prince and the Pauper retelling where one. Oh, of them was, okay. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I, I mean, I kind of see what you mean. I think so. I going into this movie, I was kind of expecting, obviously, the idea of like identity mm. is is explored to some extent in this um i, I think mm-hmm. that there's it sets up some really interesting potential questions and i don't want to criticize this movie for what it isn't but when i when it was like oh you know she she's in his body and he's in her body and is this going to get into like gender identity mm. and you know one of them maybe realize that there's there's a, a suggestion that mitsua in in taki's body is starting to kind of flirt with um with a, a a woman that he works with and is is has a crush on, and I was I was kind of in my head thinking, oh, is it going to turn out that maybe she's gay and she's figuring out she's gay through through living in his body, mm-hmm. um, and it didn't really go into any of that. Um, no. Did you did you kind of expect I'll have the similar expectations to where it was going to go or 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 not? I didn't actually. Um, interestingly enough, I I don't know why actually. That seems like a very logical uh, sort of expectation to have of a film these days which deals with body swapping especially between teenage uh a teenage boy and a teenage girl who are sort of finding themselves and Mm -hmm. i I definitely see those like when they were mentioning about um uh that is it taki yeah when taki was like whenever mitsuo was in taki's body and like they were mentioning like sort of the feminine nature of of, that he was sort of portraying i was like okay well that's that's really cool um is maybe that gonna make him get more in touch with that side later on and maybe you could argue that it did but no i did i didn't actually think it was going to go down a gender identity route um it would have been very interesting if it did Um, i would be interested to see if it did do that whether it would have been as commercially successful it's one of those things that maybe maybe that would have hindered the, the box office because people you know it's a sensitive issue and some people would maybe you would have you would have some he- talking heads on the internet trying to convince you not to see it you know what i mean yeah yeah and and i think um the route that it does go and i and i'm i'm going to say this now because um well, well i'm sure we'll come back to it later but i i really loved this movie but i will admit that i am an old softy who loves uh loves a a, a traditional love story mm-hmm. and and the route that this movie ends up taking i think although it has a really cool plot device and does some really compelling stuff in its second act it is kind of just a love story that it tells Mm -hmm. and i I don't mean that sound dismissive there's nothing wrong with telling a love story but but it there were there was potential for it to do some other stuff that it didn't really do um and i was a little disappointed that it didn't do them even uh, even though what it did do i think it did very well um the question the question is did it avoid it enough that you could hold, you could, you could respect it on its own, or did it do like a, a a J.K. Rowling where imply an awful lot, but but don't don't commit to the fact that Dumbledore's gay in the actual <laughs> yeah. text. No, I, I I mean I think I think that J.K. Rowling stuff is 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 just done in bad faith to be like I don't know this queer baiting is, is that what it's called queer baiting I think well, yeah, yeah like I mean it's just like you know kind of saying yeah this character's gay I'm not going to do anything to actually uh, yeah. you know further further the cause or support this issue at all I'm just going to pay lip service to it and not actually worry about it and I feel like that actually to be to be honest I don't think that was ever the intention of this mm-hmm. movie I was just kind of thinking maybe they'd get into it and was a bit disappointed when they that was did. the story you told yourself about the film in your head before you saw it yes Be- before we move on Conrad because I feel like you're about to transition but I, there is something I want to say here because 
there is another animation studio in the world who has a really good chance that sorry they'll not do it but it's like a perfect setup for the first like trans rights slash gender identity storyline within a major uh a major motion uh picture in terms of not just animation but in general yeah because if they made a third finding nemo film right now this yeah. I, I apologize this this might be my cis straight white male brain really being offensive and i don't know i am so if i am let me know but do you know how clownfish naturally uh whenever the mother dies naturally in nature the male clownfish transitions to female did you know that oh i didn't know that that's interesting yeah. so so i thought of a really cool third finding nemo film because you're finding nemo finding dory finding marlin because we all know mm. that at the start of finding finding nemo the mother fish died what if there was a gender identity storyline with marlin his father doing the natural transition of a clownfish into a female fish that would be that's an interesting idea i'd like i'd, I'd be i'm trying to think how how they'd like even represent that in, i have in, no in idea like a fish but <laughs> i have um, no idea yeah, I mean, something like that would be cool. That I thought you were going to say, like, Bugs Bunny dresses up as a woman in Space Jam 3 or something like that. No, no, like, no, no. That's not going to solve the problem. That's going to no, make no, it no. worse. But, like, <laughs> like I know, like, I, I'm, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I'm coming at it from left field here. But in my mind, I'm like, has there ever been a, a, an opportunity to make a film about trans rights where there really isn't much of an argument from the other side. It's like, well, these are clownfish. Like, this is what they do in nature. So what's what's your argument? You know, we can... Yeah, you know. and uh, Disney would love that as well because they can actually just avoid ever saying trans rights in it because it's like, it's just what happens in nature. We it yeah, it works, but to... actually, you're right. It goes both ways, doesn't it? <laughs> we don't have to engage with this issue at all and we can make some money yeah. out of it by pretending to be supportive. Actually, well, I don't want them to do it now. <laughs> <laughs> well... We're, I mean, someone's going to do it at some point, but it's not your name and it's probably not going to be Disney either, let's yes. be honest. Um, the, the one thing I did want to mention before... Uh, oh, actually, there were two things I wanted to mention. First, very quickly, um, b- before we get into spoiler stuff, I love the fact that the comet in this movie, uh, which there is a comet that is streaming through the sky that everyone's looking up at and turns out to be a fairly big plot device. I won't say what it is just now, but um, I love the fact that it's called Comet Tiamat, which, um, because I'm a massive nerd, uh, or not, well, I say I'm a massive nerd because I'm, I think I'm a massive nerd, but I'm actually turned out to not be as massive a nerd as I think I am. Um, I was like, ah, that's a D&D reference. And then I went and read about it and Tiamat's mm-hmm. like a Babylonian symbol of primordial creation. And I was just thinking that it was going to be a reference to a, a many headed dragon because, <laughs> because I'm, because I'm basic. Mm-hmm. Um no, the one thing I really did want to to, to mention because um, I'm a big fan of Satoshi Kon, who made uh, anime movies like Perfect Blue and Paprika, and uh, he had a very distinct style of editing and cutting between things. And I feel like we get a couple of little moments of that in this movie, uh, similar yes. to it, where uh, there's a brief moment where Mitsuo's sister recommends that she sell the uh, kuchikami sake, the sort of rice that mm-hmm. she chews up and regurgitates into a box um which then ferments and it cuts for it goes up to like uh what seems like just a screen of her you know like a promo- promotional poster of her selling this sake and then it and then it it pans yeah. down uh mm-hmm. or pedestals down to uh, reveal it was a thought bubble above her head which mm-hmm. i loved um and there was another one i don't know if you saw where um someone was 
taking like an Instagram photo yeah. of some food and then they took the phone away and the food was gone to, no, that was to show great. passage of time. And I'm, I'm, I am a sucker for an inventive cut and yeah. those, were, those were great. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I think to properly get into this, we're going to have to get into spoiler territory now. There's no way around it. So um, if you haven't seen your name or you would like to see it before having it spoiled for you, uh, here is your warning. Now, it's the, the start of this movie, we've said, is kind of like body swap comedy. Mm-hmm. There's hints that it's going to turn into a love story. Very, very kind of mild hints, I'm going to say but not the mm-hmm. kind of love story it's going to turn into. So, I mean, did you see where, did you see any of this coming in the, in the, in the sort of second half? So the time travel. No, I, I, I didn't, yes. I didn't actually. Um, but on reflection, there is, there was some great little clues laid like the, mm-hmm. the service of the phone, not being there and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I, I thought also at the very beginning of the film, whenever like she, she handed him the ribbon. Um, yeah. I was in my head. I was like, okay, we'll, we'll probably find out about that later. But I had no idea what was going on. Um, obviously, once we found out it was time travel, then my brain was going over, over, overload, like thinking, like you know, oh, the the red thing on his wrist—that's got to be her ribbon. Like I knew that as soon as I knew it was time travel. Um, yeah, sure. But I didn't see it coming. Is the answer to the question, though? What about you? Um, so, in a rare moment of of I'm I, I'm going to call it like I say it. Brilliance is the word I'm going to use to describe this. <laughs> I. Within 10 minutes of this movie starting, I leaned across to my partner and I said, I bet one of them's dead. And they were alive several years ago. And mm. uh, wouldn't you know it, turns out old Conroy, I can't even pronounce. See, I was about to brag then, but then I couldn't even pronounce my own name correctly. And I've completely <laughs> undone any of the credibility of the bragging that I was about to uh, I was about to do. So let's move on and just agree to disagree. That's <laughs> fine. Um, it didn't sneak up on me. I, I will. The, the time travel stuff did kind of sneak up on me um, because I thought it was going to end. I thought it was going to be, you know, them getting closer and closer together. Mm. And then he would realize at the end that she died. It, it, it reminded me a little bit in a, a, a very tangential way of a new, a new ish um, Henry Golding and the woman from Game of Thrones, whose name I can now not remember, uh, the one who played uh, Daenerys, uh, Emma, Amelia Clark, Amelia Clark, where she uh, meets a man and he, you know, it's a rom com. I, I, I can't remember the name of this movie, so I'll, I'll try not to. I'll try to keep it vague. So Love something, yeah, yeah. She she meets a man and uh, you know it's typical rom com stuff. He he teaches her to you know be more productive in life or whatever and uh and it turns out that she's had a heart transplant and uh, she has his heart um and it and it kind of remind I, I was reminded is that that is not a good movie you don't need to go and watch that to get any context for your name but it, it kind of put me in mind of, of of a similar kind of thing where i was expecting that heartbreak to come at the end as it turns out what we get instead is tacky realizing pretty early on that mm-hmm. like 45 minutes in or so i think yeah, like the the, the, the the comet that they've all been looking at hits uh, Mitsuo's town three mm-hmm. years ago and he must basically invoke um, this kind of nebulous spiritual idea of Masubi, this like th- these threads that connect individuals across space and time to essentially ask for a day, to, another day to swap into her body to mm-hmm. help her save the town. Um, now... <sighs> I, I really liked that. I thought it was really compelling. The whole like racing around trying to trying to save things. Did that did that work for you? 
It did work for me. Um, it did very much work for me. It's, it's interesting, post the TV show Dark, I, I have to really realign my mind in terms of time travel stuff because my yeah. whole life I've loved time travel. Um, but how serious the creators of Dark took the time travel and tried to be as yeah. consistent as possible. Um, I really have to realign my mind back to a previous time before Dark to really appreciate time travel the way I always have. And I really did enjoy it. Anything to do with going into the past and trying to change something from ha happening, I've always had a really soft spot for that. And I thought they did a really good job in this. And I, I liked the fact as well that they, they left it up in the air until very late on whether or not they were successful in changing anything you know yeah i i love it i love it we'll we'll, we'll come come to the ending in a second because mm -hmm. I, I i'm a sucker for that kind of ending and it very much works on me but it's interesting that you make the dark comparison mm -hmm. here because as soon as i saw the braided hairband the red hairband that uh that kind of linked them i was like yeah. oh ariadne's thread yeah. <laughs> here we go and uh, and you know I, although i totally agree with you i think Dark spoils you in terms of how committed it is to making its time travel very complicated, but also functional. It also works mm -hmm. and feels like it makes sense. Whereas this, they kind of hand wave it, which I don't, yeah. you know, I don't mind. They're just like, I don't know, Masubi. It's this idea of beings being connected across space and time, and mm -hmm. we're not going to get into the intricacies of how the time travel works. It just does work because yeah, they're yeah. connected by this energy. But there is there is that similarity between Taki and Mitsuha and uh, Jonas and Marta in Dark, I think, and this idea of beings kind of indelibly linked mm -hmm. across time and space, which oh, I yeah. found really fascinating. Yeah, I, th I think that's really, really great as well. And I like the idea of this Japanese culture being brought into this time travel, because as you mentioned Ariadne's thread there, it seems like, and I also previously uh, recently watched Sisyphus on Netflix as well, a mm -hmm. Korean time travel show. It seems that Greek mythology is the first thing people think of when they want to make a time travel thing, which yeah. is re really cool. Don't get me wrong, but I liked seeing an introduction of a different culture into this. Obviously we had the Ariadne thread too, but I liked the, this idea of it being described this link between them being described in some way that wasn't just, you know, let's retell the same thing again with Greek mythology, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and actually, you know, it might not have been a reference to Ariadne's thread directly. It may be something from, you know, Japanese mm -hmm. mythology that I just don't know about because I'm ignorant of it. Um, but it certainly reminded me of that. Um, 100%. Okay, so let's talk the ending. We've got to talk the ending. I'm, I've made no bones about this. I'm a big softie. I love a happy ending. Uh, and the only thing I love more than a happy ending is an ending that pretends it might not be a happy ending until the very moment that it becomes a happy ending. Yeah. Now, this movie ends with Mitsuha uh, confronting her dad or the beginning of a confrontation with her dad who she doesn't really get on with and who's basically refusing to let all the people uh, of Atomi leave uh, to, the, to the high school, which will save their lives. And she kind of runs in and it cuts to, I think it's like four years later, something like that, like Taki going to work or going to yeah, job interviews. A couple of years later, five, five maybe? I don't know. Yeah. Um, and, and they basically, because because they have figured out a way to, um, they figured out a way to kind of talk to each other while they're on top of this 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 mountain where the energies that link them are the, are the strongest. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they've, in, in theory, been able to uh, to stop this from happening. Um, but the price they pay is that they forget each other's names and yeah. um, Taki chooses to write on Mitsuha's hand that he loves her rather than his name which would have saved everyone a whole lot of hassle to be honest if he had yeah. done it now a more cynical person than me and I'm not pointing the finger at you Anthony but I'm just saying maybe it could be 
would find the ending a little convenient that these two somehow managed to find each other again in in in, uh, in Tokyo at the very end. Did that work for you, or did you find yourself rolling your eyes? I didn't find myself rolling my eyes. Um, but I think if you don't roll your eyes at the Eagles picking up Frodo and Sam, you're not going to roll your eyes at much. Um, that, that's, that's a good point. That's how I sort of felt about it. You know, like I, 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 I just thought to myself, it was like an Eagles moment. Like this, it's like it has to happen. It's cool that it happens. The ending wouldn't happen without it. I think I would. This is the type of show, like there was a time when we were watching Dark where I, when I was first watching the show, I was kind of wanted everything to sort of have a more nihilistic ending. It was kind of, maybe you could argue it was a little nihilistic, but I actually don't believe it was. Um, I think they could have went that way here, um, but I really like that they didn't. I I really, and, I, and as, as you say, like they, they waited till the very end. Like it was like his normal life now. He doesn't know this girl's name anymore. And then all of a sudden, boom, She's on the train, just randomly meets her on the train. Yeah. It, it worked for me. Um, I don't, what didn't work for me, and this is just shows you how much of a pernickety asshole I am, um, was they saw each other on trains crossing. Yes. I don't believe they would have found each other on the same day. That is ridiculous. Can you, yeah. like, them randomly meeting on the train the first time, fine. But then when you see it, like, how do you know what station they got off? Where do you, where do you start looking? Yeah. I just was like, no, 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 that's, that I, I like uh, uh, that, that, that ending. I was, I was in full on like romance mode. I was like, I don't care. Get them together. Like you yeah, know, yeah, the, yeah. the energy of the universe is bringing these two together. But I think if I, t- if I had taken a step back from it, I, and, and, it, and had I heard uh, any, anyone like criticize it, I would have been like, yeah, that's fair enough. Like it is ridiculous that they managed to find <laughs> each other, but whatever they get, you know, they say the name of the film as the last line of the movie. And you know that they're going to be together forever because they love each other. And gosh, darn it. If I didn't have a tear in my eye and a lump in the back of my throat, when it, when it happened. And the music swells, an old, an old the music, music swells. swells. Uh, just just to end it, I just want to ask you whether or not we should have been laughing. Were you laughing every time he woke up and he started touching her boobs? Like, there was, uh, you, yes, you, it, it never stopped being funny. And, yeah. and like, it became funnier when he denied that he was doing it as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was so funny to me, like that he even he like he was like, he was like, no, I shouldn't. I shouldn't. You know, it's her body. Yeah. He literally said that. And then the sister, he's crying, like as her, he's crying. And then his <laughs> sister, the sister comes in and he's like bawling his eyes out, but still holding the boobs. <laughs> yeah. There is, there is some very good comedy in this, I have to say. Like some moments that really made me laugh. Um, yeah, that, there's... Um, yeah that that like when they are on the top of the on the top of the mountain and they're like let's write our names on each other's hands so we don't forget each other and he writes on her hand and you assume he's written his name mm-hmm. and then she starts writing on his hand and just draws a line and then disappears yeah and even though it's quite a it's a, it's quite a sad moment i was i burst out laughing so i was like that's so <laughs> that's so unfortunate <laughs> um but I, I i didn't realize that he he was an idiot who wrote i love you rather than his name oh, God. <laughs> which, which really would have saved some time um, but so overall, then, how um, how how did you find your name? Full stop. Uh, for your name, full stop. I, I I actually really like it. It's it's funny. It's called your name, full stop. You know, because the people uh, who made our music for this podcast, Jared Iscariot and Nancy Wyatt, are in a band called Cloakroom Q. Full stop. It's uh, important that punctuation's doing a lot of work. Well, they originally called Cloakroom full stop but then a band from america with like a hundred thousand subscribers or something messaged them and said don't you even google the name of your band you dickheads and then they were like all right all right <laughs> man great. we're cloakroom q now uh but uh yeah check that stuff out in the description but um but yeah so i i'm i'm a, I'm a lover of the full stop i'm a monster with you i actually i actually I, I did enjoy this film and I, I think i painted it in the wrong way 
when I first said it was like uh, a Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen film, or you've like made, a... you've made your bed, you've said no, it's no, cheap I th- and rubbish. Listen, last week Conrad and I had a bit of a dif- disagreement on Inception. Actually, we didn't. That was the funny part. But let me say, let me say this to you: your bias is painting that statement, Conrad. I absolutely fucking <laughs> love Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen. Me saying that I would watch Lizzie McGuire to this day. Come on, Gordo, lovely man, but. <laughs> And actually, I think uh, are they reboot. Hopefully, they're rebooting. Let's say surely, uh, surely that's going to get rebooted at some point. And they're going to yeah, bring them back uh, for for a heartwarming reunion. It was iCarly that's being rebooted. Actually, not. But I don't listen. Listen, I am. I would watch a very Kate Ashley Olsen film to this day. Lovely, cute little girls. Great film. A lot of heart. Those films. That was your bias painting that. I love that first half of the film. When the time travel started, obviously I liked it even more. Uh, I I did really enjoy this film. Will I rush to watch it? I think we just watch it again. Maybe I'll watch it in a few years. Uh, I I personally, I I know what you mean about the sweeping shots, but I personally, it was such a lovely film to look at. But the animation to me was... Like the actual character animation was just like watching a, a TV series of anime. It wasn't didn't mm. didn't feel like when I say Akira, like whenever like the the the, the body is growing and like the rolls are coming out yeah. and it was so yeah, yeah. visceral and so fluid. This this to me felt like it was the same style of character animation as you had in like a normal anime show, which isn't to say it's bad, but it just it didn't stand out to me in terms of that, you know? Yeah, no, I mean I think that's fair enough. I think um I, I think there is something to be said for how the the art of the environments certainly did a lot to help oh it was beautiful it was beautiful um but i I mean i i would agree with you i i loved this movie i i thought it was it was really lovely really touching i think there are things i would have liked it to have done with its narrative but ultimately it didn't need to do them to be a great movie because it it was still great regardless of whether it did them Mm -hmm. um which is going to just about do it for us, I think, here on the Best Movie Podcast ever, which mm-hmm. leads us, quite naturally, as it always does, to uh, one simple question, which is, Anthony, what's your favourite movie? My favourite movie... Um, I Literally, this just popped into my mind. I don't know why it popped into my mind. Oh, but careful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Let's see what it is. Well, it's not a Japanese film, actually. It's, it's maybe because I mentioned Sisyphus. It's a Korean film. I'm going to say Parasite, actually. Okay, Parasite's mm-hmm. a great movie. Um, I'm, I'm going to say your name. Uh, I love this. I'm going to go watch Weathering with you sometime mm. very soon, I think, because I want more of this guy. Um, thank you to Nancy Wyatt and Jared Iscariot for the use of our theme song. You can find links to their stuff down in the thing below. And uh, thank you for listening. Uh, please consider subscribing. We are The Culture Cave on YouTube and the best movie podcast ever on podcasting apps if that is your preferred medium of consumption. Uh, get involved in the comments. Uh, give the show a like. It really does help. And we will see you same time, same place, next week. And cut. Cut.